Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. On last week's episode of Fascism in Fiction, a little mini-series that I've been running on Tuesdays talking about the depictions of fascism in fiction, I talked a little bit about how, as a culture, the United States especially, and just the Western world in general, eventually learned how to laugh at the Nazis throughout the course of the 20th century. I brought up Mel Brooks's Producers as an example, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this week. This movie, written and directed by Mel Brooks in 1967, was Mel Brooks's screenplay and directorial debut. It won him an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay in that year. It stars Zero Mostel, a famous Broadway actor, famous for playing the leads in Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is a pseudo-Roman farce, and he also originated the Broadway role of Tevye in The Fiddler on the Roof. He plays Max Bialystok, a hack Broadway producer who funds shows and his lifestyle, you know, his sort of like lavish Broadway lifestyle, by cheating elderly women whom he pretends to be attracted to. He cheats them out of their money and is also sort of romancing and dating multiple ones of them at a time. The other lead in the movie is Gene Wilder in his second film debut as Leopold Bloom, a character named after the main character from James Joyce's Ulysses. The character Leopold Bloom is a neurotic accountant. He is um, Bialystok's accountant. Note that this means that all three of the principal people involved in producing this movie, Mel Brooks, Mostel, and Wilder are all Jewish Americans, which uh, will become very important as I talk to you about the plot of this particular film. So, talking about the plot, Mel Brooks conceived of the plot that would eventually become The Producers after meeting a Broadway producer who had a life sort of like Bialystok's, essentially a crook, you know, somebody who, like, stole money from people with false claims about making a big Broadway production. Mel Brooks imagined such a character coming up with an ultimate scheme to raise a massive amount of money for a new play, but then to put on a play so terrible that it was guaranteed to fail. The idea was that then the character would pocket the money since nobody would expect you to still have any money left after a flop. And that is indeed the plot of the movie. Bialystok's accountant, played by Gene Wilder, Leopold Bloom, comes in and looks at Bialystok's books, and he makes an offhand joke that with such a scheme, you might actually be able to make more money off of a failed play than a successful one. Bialystok's eyes light up, and he decides that they are going to go through with this. The two of them eventually decide that they're going to conspire together, join forces, and produce a terrible, terrible Broadway play. They spend some time looking for the perfect script, a script guaranteed to fail. Now, moving back out to the meta situation again, as Mel Brooks is writing the script for this play, for this play within a play, right? Mel Brooks decides he's going to use a joke that he has come up with before. He decides that the play within a movie is going to be Springtime for Hitler, which was the working title of this production, uh, this eventual movie production, for most of its lifetime. In the fiction of the movie, The Producers, this play, Springtime for Hitler, was written by a Nazi veteran who was living in New York City. And he wrote the play in order to exonerate Adolf Hitler for his crimes. So this is what's happening at about the midpoint in the movie. Bialystok and Bloom, two Jewish-American Broadway producers, are approaching a Nazi playwright who is presented as being 
depraved and deranged, and not just because he's a Nazi, but like that, that he's gotten messed up because of the war. And they approach him and say like, hey, we want to produce your movie. And one interesting scene, he accepts their offer of producing the movie. He gives them the script, you know, they get the rights. And he gives them two little swastika armbands to wear around. They do put them on, but then as soon as they walk out into the New York streets, they take them off and put them in a trash can. In order to make this worst script into the worst possible movie, Bialystok and Bloom also go and find what they consider to be the worst director and the worst lead actor to play Adolf Hitler. The worst director in the movie is depicted as a did-not-age-well-at-all homosexual stereotype. Uh, this is one of the parts of the movie that is the most problematic in a contemporary viewing. The worst lead that they come up with is another joke that doesn't age well at all, but this time because it doesn't really land anymore. They pick a hippie whose, uh, whose, whose name abbreviates to LSD to play Adolf Hitler. Now, uh, that is funny, but it's not quite as funny now as it probably was in 1967. So, now in the movie The Producers, the two producer characters put on the show. And we, the film audience, get to see a little bit of it. This, you know, this, this production, Springtime for Hitler. It is an incredibly farcical, massively over-the-top Nazi propaganda piece. It is ridiculously crazy and uses a lot of the conventions that Broadway at the time had. You know, massive dance numbers, ridiculous costumes, mirrors so that you can see people marching around in a swastika formation. Uh, there are explosions, there are gunshots, there are people in lederhosen, there are people dressed as pretzels. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely nonsensical, way over the top, and uh, absolutely fucking hilarious. If you watch any part of this movie, I highly suggest that you watch this bit. Just make sure that you are getting the original 1967 film version. So after we see this, we get a lot of really wonderful audience reaction shots of, you know, the audience of this Broadway play watching it. Their mouths are totally agape. Nobody can believe what they are seeing. And our two, you know, quote-unquote heroes, Bialystok and Bloom, leave the theater triumphantly, assuming that they have succeeded and also trying to, you know, get out ahead of the crowd, which they assume might actually be after them. However, unfortunately for them, then the main character of the play appears, Adolf Hitler. And played by this Nazi actor, the audience decides that this play is in fact a joke. They decide that this is a farce. They think that it is incredibly hilarious. They fucking love it. And the audience re returns rave reviews on this play. They, they say that Springtime for Hitler is a beautiful, perfect, satirical piece about the Nazis. They love the play. This is, of course, a disaster for the producers because they are not trying to produce a successful play. They are trying to produce a fantastically unsuccessful one because they've been cooking the books on it, right? So Bialystok and Bloom, after being assaulted by the Nazi author of their play for presenting Hitler in an un unforgiving light, all three of them try to sabotage the play. They try to blow up the theater because they're worried about being found out. They accidentally blow themselves up instead and are tried for all of their crimes. They are then sent to jail where we see them trying exactly the same scheme out on prisoners and they're producing another really stupid play called Prisoner of Love and once again massively overselling 
shares in the play itself. They're seen even, you know, duping the warden and the guards on this scheme. So that's the plot of the film, right? When the movie came out in 1967, critics were extremely mixed on the release. A lot of people said that it was in poor taste. They were just not ready to laugh at Hitler and the Nazis. Remember, 1967 is only 25 years after the war, right? Like, this is this is very soon after the war. A lot of the people watching this movie participated in it, and some of them might have even been Holocaust survivors, right? Eventually, though, the movie has gotten a very different reception as one of the most ingenious comedies ever produced in the United States and one of the greatest works of satire and dark comedy in, you know, the comedic world. This eventual success, and also the critics who did like the movie, eventually enabled Mel Brooks's entire career, essentially, as he produced movies like Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, and etc. This also eventually led to the movie The Producers being produced as a Broadway musical, The Producers, starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. This Broadway production was itself later made into a remake of the movie in 2005, uh, don't watch this version. It's not nearly as good as the 1967 version. Now, also I want to note that the original 1967 version of this movie has a lot of things that are today really unpalatable, in addition to the queer stereotypes that I talked about before, although the, the 2005 version has pretty much exactly the same ones. Uh, the movie also has some very broad ethnic stereotypes, and I don't mean of Germans, I mean of Jewish people. Um, it has a whole lot of sexism. And also the central premise of the movie is that there are a lot of laughs at the expense of the idea that elderly women might have sex drives or like being romanced by their boyfriends, which isn't funny. That's just, you know, people having desires. However, the central part of the movie, the farcical idea that somebody might make a joking play about Adolf Hitler intending for it to be a flop, but then have people decide that it is a brilliant satire and believe that, you know, it, it, it needs to be the most successful play, but that that is a disaster for the people making the play. Like, you know, it's a, it, it, it's beautiful little reversals. It, 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 it's a wonderful little joke. You know, it's, it's, it, it's great. It, it's an incredibly brilliant premise. Brooks himself was clear about the fact that he considered this movie and its farcical premise about laughing at the Nazis and about getting people to laugh at the Nazis a little bit earlier than they might have wanted to. He, he, he was very clear about the fact that, like, for him, this was something of a political act. In 1978, about 10 years after the movie came out, he says, quote, More than anything else, uh, the Holocaust by the Nazis is probably the great outrage of the 20th century. There is nothing to compare it with. And so what can I do about that? If I get on the soapbox and wax eloquently, it'll be blown away in the wind. But if I do springtime for Hitler, you know, the, the play within a play, it'll never be forgotten. I think you can bring down totalitarian governments faster by using ridicule than you can with invective, end quote. So that is the central premise of the farce of the movie, that it might be useful to us as viewers to laugh at the Nazis, that it might be something politically functional, you know, that, that, that it might do us some good to be able to see some farcical, some, some, some joking, some funny part in the legacy of Nazism and even the Holocaust itself. Now, that is a very controversial statement, and it was controversial in 1967, and it's still controversial today. Personally, as a scholar of fascism and as a person and, you know, as a leftist, I think that there is some merit to this claim, right? Especially in retrospect. 
laughing at the Nazis robs them of the power that they'd hoped to keep forever, right? It puts them in the real world. It puts their actions in the real world as something that can be joked about rather than on some sort of, you know, sacred and, you know, unexaminable pedestal, right? As, as something that's apart from the real world, as, as something that's just like a break in history. And a lot of people believe that about the Nazis and also the Holocaust. They think that it, it deserves to be kept separate from the rest of history so that it, it can't be put into context, that, that it has to be this, this ultimate pit of evil, right? Instead, laughing at the Nazis puts them in context. You know, it, it puts them back in the world that we all live in. It puts them in a, a messy, sad place, right? We also can't ignore the fact that this movie was written by a Jewish American man who was hoping to get at the horrors of Nazism in the ways that he could, in the ways that he was good at, via comedy and jokes. However, this message also carries some danger, right? Would this work, for example, today, right? Would it work to make a joking play about the alt-right? I, I, I don't know. Would this play have worked in Germany in the late 1920s as the Germans were growing in power, right? It's harder to laugh when it's not in retrospect, you know? It's harder to laugh at growing fascism. Mel Brooks was writing this at essentially the weakest point of fascism in world history in the 20th century, right? In the late 1960s, neo-Nazism was not nearly as powerful as it would eventually be in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know? The alt-right didn't exist. The producers works the best now because it's about the past, and it worked in 1967 because it was about their past too. For a lot of people, it wasn't nearly distant enough of a past in 1967, and that's why they didn't like it. It's possible that that is why this joke feels easier to laugh at today in the 21st century. It's, it's it, you know, maybe that's why critical approaches to the movie have become more favorable since it came out. However, I also want to caution us about precisely what Mel Brooks is saying, you know, that, that, that totalitarian governments can be toppled by laughing at them. Obviously, there is something to this, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to keep people alive, and that comedy is something that helps people do that. It, it, it helps people stay mentally and emotionally afloat, and it helps us recognize that the people who might be hurting us or hurting other people are not deserving of reverence at all. They are not deserving of awe. They aren't even deserving of pity. They are deserving of ridicule at best, right? Like joking, laughing at them is a kind act compared to what fascists and Nazis really deserve, you know? And that's part of the caution here. I, I, I want to caution people who believe that contemporary fascists can be laughed away. Their supporters and potential recruits will not be laughing at these jokes. The people who might benefit from their growth will also not be laughing at these jokes, which means that it will not stop their growth, right? Laughing at the alt-right, laughing at contemporary right-wing figures, it is helpful in a personal context. It's helpful for morale. It's helpful to put them in their place on a cultural setting, but it is not going to be sufficient to stopping their rise and their, you know, their seeking power. It might be something that helps us put them in context in retrospect, but I don't think that it's something that we can do to stop them today. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. 
If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. I am on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and also fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you on Thursday. Thursday.